So what is it that marks a healthy church? What marks a healthy church? I mean, hopefully all of us would begin with the confession of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The message that we celebrate through baptism and the Lord's Supper. And from there, perhaps you'd add sound theology as another mark. And the regular preaching of God's Word. And we wouldn't want to forget faithful leadership either. Nor the people's care for one another through accountability and encouragement and uh, generosity and bearing burdens. A healthy church would also have great concern for making disciples, both locally and globally. And maybe you would add other marks, like prayerfulness, ministries to the poor. But what if I said there's something more fundamental than all of those qualities that I've listed? Such that to have all those qualities and lack this one thing would only make you a shell of a church. A church in name only. And what if I said it's also not something you can produce, but it must be granted you from above? I'm talking about the powerful presence of God the Holy Spirit indwelling His people and working through His people to spread the knowledge of God. And I want to end on that note today. But first, I want us to look at the prophet Joel again. Joel promised that such a day would come when the Spirit's presence would mark God's people in this way. In verses 18 to 27 of chapter 2, we observed only the first part of God's merciful answer to His people's cry. Soon He would restore their land from the locust plague, but restoring the kingdom around God's people was not all that God purposed to do. They also needed the kingdom born in them through the knowledge of God in their midst. And so we come to verse 28 today, where the Lord's word says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions." Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, when reading the prophets, one thing to remember is their unique perspective 
uh, prophets often spoke about the future in, in kind of a, they would give you like a collage of events that were, gonna, were to come uh, without necessarily indicating how far apart those events would, would be fulfilled. Uh, some have illustrated this with the so-called mountain peaks of prophecy, right? There are occasions, if, if you've been to the mountains, there are occasions when from one perspective, a whole mountain range can look like a single mountain, like this first image on the screen. It's not until driving a little bit further that you can discern how far apart those ridges really are, like the second image on the screen. Let's see if we get it here. <laughs> there we go. The first image illustrates more of what the prophet's message looks like. Sometimes you may find yourself confused when you're reading a prophet. And you're like, Man, he's bouncing back and forth and back and forth. Which, which, where, where does what go, right? And you get to the New Testament and you kind of sorting things out. So, we've got to drive further into the New Testament later today to sort out some of the things Joel will tell us in our passage. But first, I want to look at three prophecies that Joel has here in this passage. Each one of them make up this collage of events that he doesn't necessarily separate out for us yet. The first is this, God promises the outpoured spirit. God promises the outpoured spirit. This is in verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. Now, Joel doesn't specify when God will do this. He only tells us that it will occur afterward. And he means there after the Lord restores Zion in, in, uh, in, this, in, this, uh, in the first part of chapter 2. So unless the Lord pours out His Spirit, the restoration of God's people remains incomplete. Now, when the Lord speaks of pouring out my spirit, we shouldn't think of some impersonal force. Like he's giving us some kind of divine energy. We're looking here at the gift of God himself, the third person of the Trinity. Okay? For the Lord to pour out himself this way means for him to give himself to his people without holding back. Okay? Sometimes this same word appears quite often in texts about God pouring out His wrath upon the nations, and, 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 and often it's seen in parallel with this language of giving full vent to it, Getting the, letting the full brunt of His anger be poured out. But here it's referring to the gift of His Spirit. The blessings of His presence aren't going to come like a little trickle. Or a gradual pour, like Kool-Aid. It's like, it's like a flood coming through, crashing down through the, the mountains. Notice also who receives this gift. It says all flesh. Okay? He doesn't mean all humans without exception, as if to say every individual on earth. He means all kinds of people who join God's covenant community. And that becomes more apparent with the next few phrases, right? Your, so the covenant community, your, your sons, 
and your daughters, and your old men, and your young men, and male and female servants. And later in verse 32, everyone who calls. So we've got ethnicity and gender and age and economic status. So we've got all kinds of people, all flesh. Not just Jews or those in leadership or the wealthy. Everyone in the covenant community would benefit equally from the Spirit's presence. Now, this is huge. This is a huge step in, the, uh, in redemptive history. Okay? To this point in Israel's history, the Spirit was poured out on chosen individuals like the prophet and the priests and the kings and maybe a few others. And the Spirit empowered them to lead and judge and mediate and speak on God's behalf. But not every individual enjoyed the same empowerment and the same knowledge of God. It was largely mediated through these other individuals. We even see Moses wishing that all God's people had the Spirit like this. So there's this episode in Numbers chapter 11. And God takes the Spirit that was on Moses and He empowers these other 70 elders, and as soon as the Spirit rests on them, the elders begin to prophesy. And the same happens to these other two guys. A little bit later, Eldad and Medad, and the Spirit rests on them, but they prophesy in the camp. Not, not, in, not, uh, not where the, the temple is. They prophesy... Uh, where, the, where the tabernacle was, they, they prophesy in the camp. And so this raises all kinds of concerns. And uh, someone runs and tells Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua says, my Lord Moses, what are you going to do about this? And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. And that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. This is Moses' longing. Moses longed that everybody in the covenant community had the Spirit like he enjoyed. Well, that longing of Moses is getting picked up here by Joel. And he's saying that in the, in the new age, it's going to be better than the old one. The new age would be way better than any age that preceded it. The Spirit would fill everyone in the covenant community, not just a few and for what purpose? To spread the knowledge of God. Okay? Sometimes the, spirit, uh, the, the prophet spoke of the Spirit coming uh, to purify God's people. Sometimes they spoke of the Spirit who would come and He would get rid of their idols. Sometimes the Spirit would... Uh, uh, they prophesied about the Spirit coming to regenerate our hearts. Sometimes to unite God's people under the Messiah. Sometimes they spoke of the Spirit raising people from, from death to life. But another way God's Spirit was going to work in the New Age was by spreading the knowledge of God. He mentions, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. So we've got prophecies, dreams, visions, all these various means God used to reveal Himself and His purposes. The Spirit would enable all God's people to participate in spreading the knowledge of God. In the new age, with Zion restored, Moses' wish would come true. 
all the Lord's people would become like prophets who edify one another in the knowledge of God. Then the second event Joel foresees in our passage, God warns of the coming judgment. God warns of the coming judgment. Verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Joel has has already prepared us for these images. Some of them we saw in chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, The earth quakes before him. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw. They're shining. And we observe observe there that that when uh, when kings would lead their their thousands of, of chariots into battle, you could feel the land start to shake as the king approached. But if the entire cosmos is shaking, if the vast greatness of his, pres- of his approaching presence darkens the sun, moon, and stars, then we're dealing with a far greater warrior here. And the same ideas are repeated here with the sun being darkened and the, and the moon turning to the color of blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. But he also adds, look, these signs on earth normally associated with war, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Okay? And I think he's drawing from at least two stories in Israel's history to paint a picture for you. Okay, so one is in Joshua chapter 8, verse 20, where Israel sets the ambush for the city of Ai, and they create a diversion, and they lure the soldiers out away from the city, and then and then the rest of the group comes in and attacks Ai from behind the city. They set it ablaze. And then the men of Ai look back and they see the smoke of the city rising to heaven. And it says, Behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that. And then the other picture is in Judges, chapter 20, verse 40, where you get the same thing, only this time Israel's fighting against one of their own tribes. Benjamin gets lured away, and same thing happens. The soldiers come in, attack the city, and Benjamin turns to see their city in flames, and it says, when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, Benjamin grew dismayed, for they saw the, the disaster was close upon them. So Joel is pulling from this imagery in Israel's history to say that when the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, people will look and be dismayed. They will be powerless before His might. They will see disaster closing in upon them. God is on the move to judge His enemies here and there will be no way to escape, no way to hide from His all-consuming presence. This scene reminds us of what He said in chapter 2, verse 11, that the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And the answer is nobody. Nobody on their own. Nobody in their sins. And so the question becomes, is there any hope? being rescued. 
That brings us to the third prophecy in our passage. And the answer to the question is yes, God extends salvation to all who call on Him. God extends salvation to all who call on Him. So this is the third piece in Joel's collage of events. Verse 32, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, based on the devastating curses that overtook Zion in chapters 1 and 2, it seems that we're, we're seeing here the restored Zion, the restored Jerusalem. Again, it's a picture of God's kingdom, of God reigning over His people in peace. And He's saying here that the only way to escape the judgment and find safety in Zion is by calling on the name of the Lord. The only way to escape judgment and find safety in God's kingdom is by calling on the name of the Lord. Now, calling on the name of the Lord isn't just a matter of saying a name. Okay? Calling on the Lord's name comes from that place that that Ben has been talking to us about. Spiritual bankruptcy. You know that you are spiritually bankrupt. You know how unable you are to save yourself, and so you cast yourself upon the Lord as your only hope. He becomes for you everything. Okay? Calling on His name means you trust His power and His character and His provision to keep saving you. Dwayne Garrett is, is right, I think, when he says, this is not a prayer of desperation in, in only a moment of crisis, but the consistent identification with the God of Israel. It includes confessing Him before the nations and involves faithfulness to the Lord through trial. But notice something further. The Lord's call stands behind their call. Among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So implied in Joel's prophecy here is that the readers waste no time In calling upon the Lord, the matter is urgent, but when they call, they learn that God's call enabled their own. They called because He called them. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, those are Joel's three prophecies. Outpoured spirit, coming judgment, and then salvation extended to all who call. That's the collage of events. Now, I want to drive a little further into the New Testament to see how these things, how the apostles saw these things playing out in history. And by doing so, we'll, learn, we'll also learn how Joel's words should be impacting us right now. Okay, so first, we need to see that Jesus Christ is pouring out His Spirit now. Jesus Christ is pouring out the Spirit now. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Jesus has died for sins. God raised Him from the dead for 40 days. He teaches about the kingdom. He tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit will come and empower them in coming days. And sure enough... Jesus ascends to the Father. God enthrones Him over the new Zion, the heavenly Zion, 
which we talked about in Hebrews a while back. And it's from there, from his reign on the new Zion, that, he, that Jesus pours out the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 33 says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Which, just as a parenthesis here, when, you, when we looked at Joel's prophecy, who was it that was pouring out the Holy Spirit? Who was it? Who? Say it louder. God, right? Yahweh. Yahweh was going to pour out His Spirit. If Jesus is pouring out the Spirit, what does that say about Jesus? He is Yahweh. He is God. Okay? So you have Jesus pouring out the Spirit. What is it that they have seen and heard, right? Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What is it that they have seen and heard? Chapter 2, verse 1. It says that there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya beyond, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What's going on? Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit, and the result is people spreading the knowledge of God. It goes on, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. No beers before breakfast, right? What's going on here? But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he then quotes from the passage we've been discussing. So they're not crazy. This is is what Joel was talking about. Only, did you notice the little change at the beginning of his quote? It shall come, uh, instead of uh, saying, it shall come to pass afterward in chapter, like Joel said in chapter 2, verse 28, Peter says, in the last days it shall be. Okay? So, 
Peter is interpreting Joel for us throughout the New Testament. The last days stretch from Jesus' resurrection to Jesus' return. Those are the last days. That's the days that you and I still live in. So Peter is telling us the new age is here. And those days are characterized by Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit on His people, causing them to spread the knowledge of God. So it's here, folks. We are living in the afterword of Joel 2.28. God has poured out His Spirit to empower you to declare the mighty works of God. Church, God doesn't pour out the Spirit so that only the elders spread the knowledge of God. Or only the deacons spread the knowledge of God. Or only the evangelists spread the knowledge of God. He pours out the Spirit so that the whole entire community spreads the knowledge of God. God has been faithful to His promise, church. Christ is pouring out His Spirit now. Which means, second, you should call on the name of the Lord. You should call on the name of the Lord. Right? If, if, If the promise is coming true through Jesus' work, then the other things that Joel talks about are going to come true as well. Like the judgment. So you should call on the name. Look look at how Peter handles this in Acts 2, uh, going to verse 37. He says, Now when, when they all heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. So just like we saw in Joel. Now perhaps you're wondering, like, okay, what about the rest of Joel's prophecy? Like, what about the whole blood and fire and columns of smoke thing? What about the sun being darkened and the moon turned, turning to blood? Because Peter also quotes that part. Is Peter saying that those wonders happened as well? Well, yes and no. Yes, in that some of these signs were associated with the cross of Christ. Okay, When Jesus died on the cross, in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 and 45, it says there, were dark, there was darkness over the land for three hours. And it says that the sun's light faded. Okay, We looked at this a, couple, a few weeks ago. But, and what we saw was that those signs tell us what the cross of Christ truly is. God's end-time judgment fell on Jesus in our place. Okay? So what does that mean for those living between God's judgment at the cross and God's judgment that's coming at the end of history? What does it mean for everybody living in here? You call on the name of the Lord now and your judgment is taken care of at the cross. So that you don't have to endure it there. So, Jesus is your way of escape and your entry into dwelling in Zion. 
dwelling in God's kingdom safely. Right? That's why Paul, we read it earlier in Romans 10, also quotes from Joel, and he says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And he quotes from Joel 2. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, like during this time, before the judgment, call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved because Jesus takes away your judgment for you. So call on the name of the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're a prim and proper religious prude or an ashamed serial adulterer. No matter your ethnicity, Irish, Asian, African, British, Latvian, Palestinian, no matter your gender, your age, your social status, rich, poor, middle class, if you call on the name of the Lord, the Lord will forgive your sins, He will deliver you from the judgment to come, and He will give you His Holy Spirit. There's no greater gift than the gift of God Himself. And He offers you Himself in the gospel of His Son. So call on the name of the Lord. Third, walk humbly. Your calling on God is the result of God calling you. Your calling on God is the result of God calling you. Sometimes Christians get in these debates of whether we choose God or God chooses us or whether we call on God or God calls us. And the Bible says both are true. It's just that one is more fundamental and produces the other. The reason we call on God is that God called us to Himself. As Jesus said elsewhere, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws Him. Apart from God's initial effective work, we would not come or call. And that should humble you. That should leave you... When you come to this table today, that should leave you asking, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear Thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. That truth needs to stay with us, not just when we come to the table today, but when we interact with each other outside of this setting, and when we interact with the lost world around us, we go to them in humility. We are not what we are in Christ because of anything we did. We are not what we are in Christ because salvation we are, we, we are what we are in Christ because salvation belongs to the Lord. So worship him and walk humbly before others. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26. He says, "For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise." God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Number four, spread the knowledge of God. Spread the knowledge of God. When the Spirit fills people in the New Testament regularly, the result is prayer and praise and prophecy and preaching and so on. Some kind of verbal ministry that helps others know God. Now hear me carefully. Luke's purpose in Acts chapter 2 isn't that every Christian must speak in a foreign tongue. Otherwise it's questionable whether you're full of the Spirit. And we know he's not saying that because the Spirit fills people in other instances in Acts and they don't speak in foreign tongues. So if God has it for some not to speak in a foreign tongue when he fills them with the Spirit, let's not build a theology that makes it the criterion for all. Right? At the same time, Luke is saying that the Spirit of prophecy makes a prophetic people. There are aspects to Pentecost that are unique and unrepeatable. Yes. But Luke's point isn't that the Spirit filled the church this once and then quit. It filled the church this once and then the apostles die and he quits. Rather, Luke is telling us of an entire new age that has dawned. Where the spirit of prophecy empowers everyone in the church to spread the knowledge of God until Jesus comes. In Acts 2, the spirit empowers some to speak in a language not their own, but he also empowers Peter to speak in a language that is his own. The one draws, the other saves. And then throughout the rest of the Acts, we find the Spirit giving visions and dreams. Some of them related to specific missionary endeavors. Right? At other times, the Spirit empowers someone with a word of instruction. Sometimes others with guidance. Sometimes, sometimes some insight into the truth that makes everybody really uncomfortable. Like when people start dropping dead for lying. Sometimes the Spirit gives some wisdom to defend the gospel in the face of opposition, like Stephen. Sometimes the Spirit gives others words of encouragement. Sometimes the people break out in spontaneous praise like we see here. Sometimes we see the Spirit empowering them to preach and to teach or to to new evangelism efforts. So there are all kinds of verbal ministries that the Spirit of prophecy produces in the church. And I think in this broader sense... All of God's people become prophets. We speak for God based on the revelation He has given us in Christ. The Spirit came not to just give us a personal experience, but for powerful outreach to the world that does not know God. The Spirit of prophecy is in you to declare the mighty acts of God yourself. He equips everyone. This way. Fifth, earnestly desire to prophesy. 
earnestly desire to prophesy. Some of you are thinking, oh boy, where is he going now? I'm just going to the Bible. That's a quote from Paul. 1 Corinthians 14. I mentioned that the spirit of prophecy produces all kinds of verbal ministry, and one of them is prophesying. Now, in the New Testament, the words prophet or prophecy sometimes refer to God's authorized spokesman or the foundational content on which the church is built. Okay? But that's not the only type of prophecy the New Testament describes. The other type refers to to that which offers the church more specific, circumstantial, not foundational, but circumstantial content that's built on the foundational content. Okay, sometimes in the scripture that looked like someone exposing another person's sin or falseness rather directly, and you could think of Peter, right, uh, exposing Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit. How does he know that? At other times, it looked like someone giving specific direction for an individual or the church's mission. So you would find that like when the church is gathered together in Acts 13, they're all praying and it says the prophets are present and it says the Holy Spirit said to the church to set apart Paul and Barnabas for this ministry. Right? Or when Paul receives a vision of this man on the other side, come, come to Macedonia. On other occasions, it includes imparting strength in a very specific way to the people gathered. Think of Judas and Silas, who the text says were both prophets, strengthening the brothers in Acts chapter 15, verse 32. Or also Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 14 that prophecies happen to edify the whole body. Prophecies are, in that context, are preferred over tongues in conveying the knowledge of God to outsiders so that they can understand. So this kind of work by the Spirit, we should not despise. Okay, we shouldn't despise it actively by putting it down. And we shouldn't despise it passively by ignoring it or standing indifferent to it. This attitude of, I don't care, take it or leave it. Instead... We should follow the Paul, Paul's instructions and earnestly pray for it to happen more. In, for, in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, Paul exhorts the church to utilize the gift of prophecy in particular. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And the first one he says is prophecy in proportion to our faith. In, de- in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.20, he says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Right? Like, use discernment here, people. Don't despise them, but use discernment. Make sure it's squaring with the Word of God. Make sure it's squaring with God's general revelation. Is it logical? Does it make sense? Make sure He's not hyped up on something. Right? Use some discernment here. Don't despise them. In 1 Corinthians 14.1, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, by asking you, 
to earnestly desire to prophesy. I'm not suggesting that the Spirit's fullness in the church is evidence only when He helps people to prophesy in this way. I'm not saying that because we, we know Paul is not even thinking that way when he, right after the chapter on tongues and prophecy, he says there's one thing of first importance and that is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, right after that. So we're not saying that. I'm also not suggesting that when the Spirit empowers someone to prophesy, that it's somehow superior to the other ways that He empowers people. I'm simply highlighting one way that the Spirit works, that our circles, Reformed Baptist folks, are more hesitant to pray for based on abuses elsewhere. So there you go. Have fun with that. Lastly, pray for others to know God in your midst. Pray for others to know God in our midst. So I want to close where we began with what marks a healthy church. Okay? Necessary to being a church is the powerful presence of God the Holy Spirit in dwelling His people and working through His people to spread the knowledge of God. In 1 Corinthians 14.25, you have this this remarkable encounter um, that Paul describes. He's he's kind of setting it up as an example. Um, And he says, and he kind of gives us a a picture of what what we've been talking about. What we should hope for in a church setting, right? This outsider, it says an unbeliever or an outsider. This outsider comes in to their assembly, where they're all gathered like this. And uh, the spirit of prophecy works to spread the knowledge of God, apparently. And and the text says that the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he worships God and he declares that God is really among you. Just a question. Do outsiders find themselves meeting God among us. When when people enter our gatherings, are the secrets of their hearts disclosed because of the words they are hearing? Do they fall humbly before the Lord and worship Him and say, surely God is in your midst? I really hope so. I hope so. I, I, don't, I don't want to be just a shell of a church. I don't want us to just come and go and do all of our churchy little things that we do and have missing the powerful presence of God's Spirit at work. I don't want to be like the temple became in Israel at one point. All the sacrifices going, everybody's doing their thing, and the glory of God has been removed from their midst. When people get around us, when we get together with one another, I want us to be able to say all the time, surely God is among us. So would you make that part of your prayers for our church? Even if we could all answer, yeah, I think that's happening. We should be praying for it to continue. 
and grow more and more. The risen Jesus is pouring out His Spirit on His people. And Luke tells us, Luke's Gospel tells us that if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So ask the Father that His Spirit would work mightily among us so that others know God in our midst. Fundamental to being a church is God dwelling among us in the power of the Holy Spirit, spreading the knowledge of God. Let's pray for that now. Father in Heaven, I ask that You would work mightily through the power of Your Spirit to do what He is great at doing, which is glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that through our words and through our deeds, a spotlight will be shown on the Lordship of Jesus and His glory, and that people would come to know You truly as You are. Lord, thank You for the works that You've already done in our body. Thank You for the things that we do, like confessing the Gospel with one another and celebrating the Gospel as we come to eat at the table. Thank You for the various ways that people sacrifice for one another and meet each other's needs. Thank You that many are concerned with winning the lost and spreading the knowledge of God to them. But we ask, that Your Holy Spirit's presence would be with us in all of it. And there would never be a point where we're trying to recreate His work, but He is not present. Guard us from the culture's pull upon us to give ourselves to various kinds of marketing schemes and keep us faithful in doing what is right before You, giving ourselves to You. I ask that everyone in here would not only call upon You and find salvation, but also that they would be filled with the Spirit to spread the knowledge of God to each other and to others they meet. In Christ we pray. Amen.